I will pray, and we will allow the Lord to work here. Father, we thank you so for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the clarity with which you share your heart, your, your mind towards us, and the encouragement, Father, the hope that we have because of your love for us. We thank you so. We thank you for your work in our hearts on a daily basis that we need so. In Jesus' name, amen. So my plan, we'll see how many minutes this lasts. My plan, um, I've, been, I've been given a deadline of I have to stop at eight weeks, um, which is fine. I don't imagine many of you will be cheering four more years for me um, because I could probably do that, being my father's son. Um, so my plan is to cover the Passion Week. Um, so we've got seven days of the week. Um, today, we would be going over the Monday of the triumphal entry. Um, there's not content uh, evenly spread over each day. So some of the days, I'm looking specifically at Thursday, will probably take over uh, one or two or three lessons. And um, then my plan, the seventh or eighth week, is to actually deal, uh, to arrive at the resurrection and spend some extra time there. So that's the plan. Um, I've, um, I've returned to my roots of uh, writing things on a wall. So um, because of how I'm planning to tackle this, um, there's a harmony of the Gospels that I got to use years and years ago. Um, so I'm not looking at a Gospel, but at all four of them um, sporadically. So I've tried to cover on the left-hand side which Gospel entries um, from which gospel I'm going to be in. And then um, I've got the Zechariah reference here because of a specific prophecy that, uh, that Jesus fulfills. So um, you can write those down or not as you wish. So I'm going to start from uh, John 11, verse 55 um, through um, a section in chapter 12. Now the Passover of the... Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised for the dead. The anointing is important, but I'm going to skip over that, um, and I'm going to drop down to verse 9. Um, the large crowd of Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. So there's a lot of things going on here, and I'm kind of fast-forwarding to this moment in Jesus' ministry um, right at the Passover. So the context is the Passover is massive, right? It is the, the sacrifice of the Lamb um, for the atonement of the sins of the entire nation. And this is a time where Jerusalem, which was a big city for the time, would swell even more uh, to something like, as there's some estimates, around 2 million people. Um, and it would be all these Jews coming from the surrounding countryside, but also sometimes from the rest of the known world, 
to celebrate and to join in. So this is a, this is a massive, massive celebration and a massive ceremony for them. And so in that context, it would seem weird to have people in Jerusalem asking if Jesus is going to show up at all. Like, do you think he's going to come? You would think that, yes, of course he is going to. But that's where this, this section talking about the chief priests and the Pharisees. So we have the, the crowds of people are aware that there's already a plot against Jesus, that they're trying to arrest him. Why this matters goes into some of these terms. So if you've got the Sanhedrin, The Sanhedrin is the term for basically the Jewish Supreme Court. And you've got two divisions. You've got the Sadducees, because they're all Sadducee. And you've got a minority, which is the Pharisees, that comprise all of this. So they're not just some random group of like YouTube influencers, but they are, these, these are people that are core to this culture. Um, and then you also have references to the scribes, which is a subset of the Pharisees. So you have, you have people that are a, a very, very big deal plotting against Jesus, which is also funny because of who it is that's plotting. So the, the context of Israel at this time is that they are under control of Rome. And there are some groups of people in Israel who are fine with that, and they don't mind um, being under uh, Rome via Herod, which is why they're known as the Herodians. We'll get to that in a little bit. Um, but the Pharisees specifically are very, very passionate and zealous for Israel having an independence. And so it's ironic that people that want to break away from Rome are opposed to Jesus on the basis that they understand he is claiming to be king. He is claiming to be Messiah. And they want to remove him because he might set up a kingdom. And it sounds schizophrenic, but at the root of it is pride because so much of it, what it comes down to is the Pharisees, they do want to break away from Rome and they do want Israel to be an independent nation, but they do not want to be in a circumstance where they would have to bow to Jesus as the king of that setup. They are the ones who have this control and they're the ones that have read the scripture. And so they have this self-importance and they do not want that taken away from themselves. And it is very, very clear these claims that Jesus are, uh, is making, especially here with the triumphal entry that we're going to get to. So this is, this, is so much of, um, this is so much of the irony that we have these prophecies that are being fulfilled. People are very, very clear about the, the statements, the message that, uh, that Jesus is giving. They hear it, they understand the claims, but they don't feel like it. They don't want it. And it is God arriving and people saying, nah, I don't like it. You should have worn something different. You should have been taller. You should have been shorter. I don't feel like you meet my expectations, so we're not going to have any of this. I'm going to continue to play my game. This is the setting. And yet, God, knowing this, willingly comes because, spoilers, he is here to save. He is here to redeem. And the state of the hearts of these people is not such that he says, like, if this is how you're going to act, I'm not even going to come. So six days before the Passover, Jesus arrives in Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And this is a statement that I always love 
because it doesn't work with so much of the English language. This person who, is, who used to be dead lived here. He used to be dead, but then he stopped, and then he got better. And because he did this, he did this un unacceptable action of not staying dead. Because of that, the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Because it doesn't really work that this miracle that testifies to the identity of Jesus would draw people to Jesus. That's unacceptable. So we need to not only remove Jesus because he is offensive to what our plans are, but Lazarus also needs to be re-killed because this is just, this is not, this doesn't work here. Um, I can talk for hours and days. If you do have questions, please do raise your hand um, if you have comments. Um, looking at you, Jim and Kevin um, and Jeff, sorry, honorable mention. So this is the setting. This is, what, this is what Jesus is aware of, right? And, and a lot of this is, is silly from just from a human perspective to see what's going on in these kinds of squabbles. But then on top of that, from this divine perspective that you have this culmination of history and he's arriving and people are playing these silly games. Um, going on to, uh, I'm going to switch to reading from um, Mark here. Mark 21, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and, one, uh, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie her and bring her to me, or, and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. So this is a, um, the, the setting here is that Jesus is about, um, I think it's, it's a few miles away from Jerusalem where he's staying in Bethany. And that's um, not on accident. I think some of it is specifically to fulfill things like the triumphal entry, but it's also because Jerusalem is just crowded out. It's just packed with people. And so to stay in a nearby town and then drive in, we do the same thing for like Thanksgiving conferences where people basically commute in every single day. So um, commuters, um, not a new thing. But as he's coming in, so you've got Jerusalem um, in the center and you've got Bethany, which is towards the east. So he's coming in and the natural road he would take would be by the Mount of Olives, which is a huge, huge significant location because you've got um, the triumphal entry that takes place and the procession of the triumphal entry effectively starts at the Mount of Olives where Jesus is arriving and is proclaiming himself to be king. We'll look at that in just a moment. But then at the foot of the Mount of Olives is this place called the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is going to be arrested. And then um, from Acts chapter 1, we read after Jesus ascends, it talks about the disciples returning from the Mount of Olives. So there are massive, significant places, um, obviously all around Jerusalem, but especially around the Mount of Olives, where you have this proclamation of him being king, you have his arrest, and you have his ascension into heaven all take place here. And I think it's amazing because as we read over it, um, it's something that in, in retrospect, we can see just how 
awesome and how incredible it is. And the people don't understand that this is awesome and incredible, this moment. They understand pieces of it. But there is no declaration, there's no neon sign that goes on that says, oh, by the way, now you're experiencing something that will be historically significant for thousands of years in the future. They, they don't have that declaration. They have the message that they've received and that they've heard, but the, the, the choice to enter into this opportunity that they're, they're living through um, they are not given a specific written detail of like, and if you choose to do the following, and it will have this impact on your life. But they're simply being prompted. They're being invited by whatever the Holy Spirit is speaking to their hearts here. And they do not have this pre-retrospective um, benefit of knowing why is it important to listen to the Lord today. But it is simply... Um, referencing Hebrews, referencing the Old Testament, while it is still called today, if you hear the Lord, respond. And this is something where, as we go through, just be thinking about how incredible it is that's going, what's going on, but how many of the people are missing out because what they are doing is they are projecting their expectations onto Jesus and saying, basically, if you do the following things, then I will call you good. But if you don't live up to it, then I'll go find something else. This is the same opportunity that we have nowadays where the Lord will absolutely fulfill his plan and his will. And our opportunity is, uh, the opportunity to, to participate in that is always before us. Um, but it is very, very significant and it's very, very important to us to humble our expectations and to lay those, hold those with an open hand um, and to tell the Lord whatever it is that you will I want what you have, and for the expectations that I have that are wrong, I need you to realign those expectations. I need you to, to change my own expectations for my benefit, because I do not have wisdom. Hey, Lugan, can I... Yeah. Can I sure. No, I was just thinking about, you know, they weren't expecting, they didn't recognize what was coming, and one of the reasons they didn't is because God didn't do people would have expected was, okay, well, now here's the king, and he's going to grow up and be like a king, and we're going to have him, and we're going to know who he is, but no, it, you know, he threatened, so they go to Egypt, and then they come back again, mm -hmm. you know, and they're all this stuff, and so God doesn't do things the way we expect, Yeah. and so that's why they didn't know, and that's why we typically don't recognize just what you're saying, is Yeah. we don't recognize, because we're not looking, we're looking for things to be done the way we would, we would do them. Yeah. Isn't that inconsiderate of the Lord? Yeah. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that is something where he, he, he knows that about us. He, he is aware of our ignorance, but our ignorance isn't the primary problem. It is simply a willingness to, to submit, to hear, and to receive from the Lord whatever it is that he has. Um, and we often project onto him, you know, like if you're going to do something in my life, and if I'm at point A and I need to be at point B because that's what you're going to do, well, then you need to, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, you need to move me to point B now because that's what we need to do. But that's not how the Lord works because he's not 
paranoid about, you know, running out of time and not having people around. Like his, his work is spread across centuries and he cannot, having created time, this is where I'm going to nerd out into metaphysics, having created time, he can't help but know what the end of time is. Right? This, this construct, having created the start of time, he had to create the end of time and the in-between. So he can't help but know what will have happened. So there is no fear of like, well, what if this doesn't work out? Like that concept cannot be for the Lord because time is a lesser thing than him. And yet he's showing up here and people are amazed that like, wait a minute, you know there's a donkey over there? And from his perspective of who he is, like, are you kidding me? Are you, are you seriously? But, but it is this thing, and I, this is where reading scripture, seeing people who don't understand the Lord, and me standing back and being like, oh, you do not understand our Lord. It, I have to go through that same process with the Lord, and I can see how, while I may be impatient with the people that I'm reading about, having children of my own clarifies that so much because there are so many things that they don't understand the relationships of and that speaks to me of of being like wow like as much as i have learned more than them and they'll get there and they'll probably exceed me far and away there is so much of the created universe that i don't know we had a comment the other day we were talking about homeschooling and you know how wonderful it is because we've got this flexibility of schedule and Idris pipes up and says, yeah, sometimes we play 40 hours a day. I'm like, well, no, no, not that much. He's like, well, not always. I'm like, okay. Just... There's a commentary there where I'm like, no, I will correct you and I will now immediately launch into a lesson. There is a, there's an innocence and a... Um, just a desire to participate in that sentence of confusion and errors where I'm like, you are my son and I love you. And as we go through this, um, that's difficult to remember that the Lord still has that love for us because the, um, it's not just ignorance that these people are speaking out of, but there's also a lot of anger and violence towards the Lord that he does not reject them while they are speaking to him. There's a specific section down here that we'll, we'll get to in a moment. Um, so talking about the donkey and the colt. Um, I, I love this section because um, they're basically, they're, they're pulling it. Well, they're not driving anything, they're walking. But on their feet, they pull into the town. And Jesus sends them on ahead and says, this is what you're going to see. It's going to be like this. And you're going to ask, and if anyone says anything, you say these things. And the disciples go, and they find the donkey and the colt. So Jesus tells them, he, he gives them a clear message, and he tells them what to say. But then he doesn't comment, presumably the people, when they hear the Lord needs it. They go, oh, okay, that's fine. And because we don't have any record of it. But Jesus doesn't say, and when you speak to these people, here's how they will respond. And because they respond favorably, therefore, you don't need to worry. But because they respond well, them responding well to you, that makes it okay for you to go do this. He doesn't say any of that. He says, I need you to go and get this and tell these people that. And that is, that's really, really significant because 
the the response of others just in terms of, of immediate application it shouldn't be that how others respond to our decision that that is what validates that we've made the right decision but to simply recognize that as we go forward into another day as we read scripture and as we hear from the lord and as we hear that continuity of his voice today with what scripture contains that is the basis of our obedience. And Doss and I have this conversation a lot of like parents, like, are we parenting well? Are we doing the right thing? Because sometimes they are short sinners and they are at odds with us. And we just were like, are we even doing this right? And the answer is yes. Like we need to trust the Lord on how we live day to day but we cannot look to our kids' behavior to say, and they're behaving like this, and therefore I'm doing the right thing. Their behavior may echo the truth of the parenting, but it may not. And so I cannot use their actions as the measure of whether I'm in right standing with my relationship with the Lord and trusting. That is something that by faith, I have to pursue and I have to trust that the Lord is able to communicate. And there are times where it feels so difficult to know, like, how do I go on and how do I, how do I know the will of the Lord for me today? And the answer is, if the Lord cannot communicate to you, right? Having a recognition of sin and our fallen nature, that's important. But if we hold up our weakness as this inverted perverse strength, that is a misrepresentation. I, I'll, I'll often use the, the idea of, you know, before I came to know the Lord, I had this opinion of myself that I like, well, I have strength, and so I don't need to go to the Lord because I can overpower and I'm, I'm, I'm all, all this. But then coming to the Lord and being confronted with the vulnerability that he has created me with, oftentimes I'll be frustrated because I can't seem to get the stuff done that I, that I see could be a blessing. And then I start to create this idea that like, well, I'm not so strong that I'm over, I can overpower the Lord, but at least I'm so weak that I can overpower the Lord. And it's like, no, you're, you're trying to create the same thing. You're trying to create this, this confused form of control that I can cause something and I, I, I am, I can be. And the reality is, is that, yeah, am I stupid at times? Absolutely. Can I get things completely wrong? You bet. And we're not going to get into that because there's not enough time. <laughs> but I have to take all of the weakness and recognize in truth, like, do I have it together? No. And the Lord's not worried about it. My weakness does not prevent. I cannot, I can claim, oh, I couldn't hear the Lord, but it's not true. If the Lord is not able to communicate to me, in a way that is very, very clear, I have much, much bigger problems than knowing what the will of the Lord is for me today. If he is unable, and he can. That is, that is the hope that we have. It's not that we, we know what the rest of our life will look like, but it's that we have a confidence that all of this omniscience that we read about here is the same spirit that we have been restored to because of the work that, that we're hearing about here, that he completed because it is done. So Jesus gets a donkey. Um, (laughs) 
because we have livestock, this is a section that before I used to be like, okay, that's fine. Um, but now reading through, I'm like, whoa, hold on now. So let me read here from, from Matthew um, 21. This is going from verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. Note, if it hadn't been Jesus, what this next section would have said, it would have said something like, and he promptly entered Jerusalem on a bucking bronco in this like cloud and tornado of dirt as this animal which had never been ridden violently and publicly did not approve of being sat on. So we've got cows and we have this young cow in particularly and never, I don't try to ride my cows. Let's not have that picture. Um, but we do, during milking, we have to halt her train and so we have to put like a rope around this calf and lead her to her mom so that she can get this milk. And the first little part was just basically this, this dialogue of us saying like, okay, we're going to feed you. And the calf responding with like, I do not approve and I wanna see your manager. And we're gonna go skiing for a little bit because she's got a really low center of gravity and, and there are still times where Doss goes land skiing with her. Um, because this new experience to this animal, the response is not like, oh, okay, we'll go on with this and, and maybe you will murder me and maybe you won't and I'll just placidly go along and it'll be fine. The fact that it is a colt which no one has ever ridden and Jesus sits on it and it just quietly proceeds in. This is incredible because this is this, this contrast here of Jesus coming to his own who don't recognize him, but creation does recognize him. And we see this over and over again where you have these little sentences and, um, and we don't have added commentary in scripture, like with judges, you know, you'll have these statements of like this happened and it was evil in the sight of the Lord. So often here, you don't have these commentaries of like, this happened, and it was a big deal because this isn't really that normal. Um, you see the same thing with at the, um, the miracles at the wedding, where they run out of wine, and Jesus says, hey, get some bath water. And he speaks to the bath water, and he's like, why don't you become wine? And the water's like, yeah, I'll do that, because you're my master. He walks on the water, because the water says, I know who you are. I know where I came from, and I came from you. So yeah, I'll be obedient and hold you up. And you have this cult here that, that recognizes its creator in a way that the people around do not. They recognize something in Jesus, but they do not recognize truly who he is. And it is this, this scripture here that's fulfilled from Zechariah 9. It is fulfilled in a large part just by Jesus showing up and being who he is. Now, why the crowds are cheering, they don't have this full understanding of what's happening, but they do understand and they do recognize the picture that Jesus is acting out. So I'm going to read from Zechariah 9. Um, I'm going to pause here, but Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. 
He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So that's the section that we have here. And speaking Christianese fluently, we understand that this is a picture of Jesus who has come as a suffering servant to die and to deliver salvation in the form of the Holy Spirit. But what the people are hearing when they see him doing this is they hear the rest of Zechariah, which is a prophecy against surrounding nations. And they're like, yeah, against, against surrounding nations. We like the sound of this, not for surrounding nations, but against them. And it's talking about the deliverance of Judah in Ephraim. So probably the bigger part of talking about expectations and projecting expectations Probably the main reason why that you find them cheering is um, going on in verse 10. It says, sorry, Zechariah 9, verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off. Talking about methods of waging war will be put to an end. Speaking of peace. Um, and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river, talking about Euphrates, which cuts through the Middle East there, ending into the Persian Gulf. Um, His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And so these are sections, sorry, uh, and uh, Zechariah 9 verse 12, return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have the hope. This very day I am declaring that you... uh, This very day I am declaring that I will restore double to you. So what Israel is hearing is this section, but they're taking that and they're projecting that the way that this king will deliver is he will set up this earthly kingdom and he will address the real problem, which is sin. No, sin's not the real problem. It's other people. Other people are the real problem. He will kick out other people and he will give us a big chunk of land where we will be in control. That is what we really need. And because Jesus knows what we really need, which is independence and political sovereignty, that is why we are, we are justified in cheering for him. And that's what's going on here. It says, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Speaking of palm trees, This is more than just a a kind of tacit celebration of like, oftentimes I think of Labor Day. People are like, yeah, I don't really celebrate. I just kind of sit around. Like, do you cheer? Like, no, it's fine. We have a barbecue. It's quiet. That's not what this celebration is. They're not sitting on the side in, in deck chairs being like, yay. They're taking off clothing and putting it on the ground as a symbol of saying like, stand on what I possess so that you do not need to touch the lowly ground. And then the palm branches, which is a, it's a recurring picture of, uh, in scripture of joy and festivity. We see it from um, Leviticus talking about with the day of atonement to use palm branches as a way of, of, of celebrating. Um, from Nehemiah with the restoration of the Feast of Booths, it comes up again. And then from 1 Kings, there are description, there's a description of Solomon's temple where the carvings that he has inside are of cherubim and of palm trees and of open flowers. So this picture that they're using, they're not just, the, the, the action of cutting down a branch and waving it around is not lunacy, but it's very much trying to show, um, to further 
think about like how else can I show my joy? How else can I show that I, I completely understand this is a celebration? That's what they're doing. I'm going to pause there for a second. You're welcome. Yeah. Versus Ephraim and the um, proud way that the leaders of Ephraim, in their drunk, it, it was kind of a drunkenness. Mm -hmm. I think of Habakkuk 2 4 when it talks about uh, the contrast, mm -hmm. that, and, and there's a statement in there about the, the righteous will live by faith. Yeah. Right? And it points to Romans 1 17. And how the, it, the contrast of Ephraim and their style of leadership mm -hmm. made them drunk with power. And they didn't submit to God. Yeah. Instead, it was this, this, uh, this um, uh, belief in the law. Yeah. But it wasn't a righteous law, right? And yeah. it's the contrast between the law and the gospel, yeah. right? And that true, where we truly are saved is through dependence on God, not on human leadership. Yeah. That is, in fact, the opposite yeah. of righteousness. Yeah. You know, and that to me is what Ephraim represents in in this statement. And and Zechariah nine and ten, the net, line ten to me is, "I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem." Which false leadership. Yeah. You know, that is, in fact, the opposite yeah. of what it means to to, to truly love God and follow God, yeah. which, which is demonstrated through Christ and his humility. And it goes back to Isaiah 28, which uh, talks about woe. It's, it's a woe about um, woe to the majestic crown of Ephraim's drunkards, you know, and it contrasts this. And then when you're talking about the from river to river, that's the end of Isaiah 27, you know, yeah. where it talks about um, uh on that day, the Lord will fresh grain from the Euphrates River as far as the way of Egypt, and you Israelites would be gathered one by one. And it's this picture of how God comes and saves a people who never got it, never yeah. understood. And in that, right, like this is where, so two things. Um, human leadership is not the salvation. The Lord absolutely uses human leadership. And there are times where we can see, like, this is... I'm pretty sure this is the Lord using that man and that woman specifically um, to bless and to empower. But it's important when we see that to recognize that the Lord's ability to use someone or something doesn't elevate them to the same level. It's just a measure of the Lord can redeem stuff to not treat, well, the Lord spoke through this song that's full of swearing. Well, Congratulations, he can speak through a bunch of other stuff, but that doesn't cause the object that you're talking about to become good. It can still be rotten, and the Lord routinely does that. So to understand that there are, there, there is a desire that the Lord has that we would be obedient to him, and while we may be blessed through people, he doesn't want us stuck on following people because there is a greater intimacy that he has for us than that. Um, back to, to palm branches, um, 
the other one that I wanted to call out here, this is from Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, talking about um, the books being opened, and you have this interlude, and then the multitude from the tribulation. Uh, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So this I love here because you have the, the, the circumstances surrounding Jesus that he is, he is moving through are people that their outwardly behavior seems to echo revelation, but they don't understand the significance. But despite the fact that they don't understand, they are acting appropriately, even if it is in ignorance. That's my wrap it up alarm. Um, which takes us to this next section here um, from Curveball here for you. I'm going to go to Luke um, because I have a nice harmony of the Gospels where I've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so I can switch verses just by switching columns. But y'all have to now scramble. Um, Luke uh, chapter 19. I do this on purpose here. Uh, Luke 19 and um, starting in 38. Uh, Sorry, 37. When he came near uh, the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they are understanding that what Jesus is doing is he's not just using a convenient mode of transportation, but his activity is saying like, I am actively fulfilling Zechariah 9. And what that means is I am without words saying like, I am your king. And they are responding and they're saying, blessed is the king. This isn't hyperbole but they are specifically responding to the contents of Zechariah. Verse 39, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. So now you have the same people that want to arrest him. Well, he's surrounded by a cheering crowd, so no one's going to try to cuff him in the middle of this going on. But they, are, they now approach Jesus, and they don't respond to him as, King, rebuke your disciples, but Rabbi, teacher, Someone who's probably on the same footing as me, you, tell them that this isn't so. What they're saying is, Jesus, these people here are saying you're king, and that's inappropriate, Jesus. So you need to tell them to not call you king. And we need to get this to be a little bit more reasonable here, because this is getting a little bit out of hand. They are telling him this. And then Jesus' response is, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Because the reality is, is even in ignorance, this is this momentous event in time where the king of Israel and the God of the universe is arriving. So their response, even if they don't understand what's going on, right? Even if it's just like this, this child metaphor, it's like they don't understand, you know, like what's going on on the 4th of July, but by golly, there's ice cream. So yes, I'll cheer. That's kind of what's happening, and Jesus is saying, this is appropriate. That response of him saying, I tell you, he replied, if, this, 
If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This is amazing because as I was reading this, I was thinking about there's a huge contrast, right? Finite creation is walking up to him and saying, you don't do things like this, Jesus. And he says, this is what should be. That is a marked different kind of response as how he speaks in Job 48 when he answers. When he goes down the list with Job, right? Where he says, okay, buck up. Now you explain to me all this of creation. When I laid the foundation of the earth, where were you? Can please clarify where you were. Tell me the nature of how water is created. Where did that come from? Lightning, can you explain to me the detailed origins of lightning? All of these things. That's the response in Job. But Jesus doesn't rebuke the Pharisees, which in my mind, between Job and the Pharisees, I would say that like Job maybe needs the, like, the kinder encouragement because he's in not the greatest place you know, with his career and his future. And the Pharisees are probably the ones where I'm like, can you reprove them? Because like, they're very arrogant. And in my mind, in the meritocracy of my emotions, they deserve a, a stronger reply. But he doesn't. And the reason for that is going to Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's something that is incredible because he has the knowledge of what's going on around him. He has arrogant people telling him how things should be. And he doesn't respond the way that I would by slapping them down. And you see that so often all the way through, I mean, his whole life on earth, the humility and the servant attitude that he has. And then we got um, just a minute or two left. And then in verse 41, uh, sorry, going back to um, Luke 19, verse 41, he says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. That within all of this celebration and cheering, Jesus is crushed because he knows what's going on in their heart. And there's, on the one hand, you've got this reference here, um, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. There's a suggestion in here that if they had responded well, there genuinely could have been a different outcome. And it's possible that Titus's destruction in 70 AD could have been averted. That's more conjecture on my part. Um, so don't go too far with that. I think the more significant part here that he's talking about is the tribulation. Because we often forget the, the need. Why is the tribulation? Why does it even need to take place? Because it is a response to when um, Moses reads the law and talks about the consequences of blessing. Um, 
So the blessings as a consequence of obedience and the curses as a consequence of disobedience. You have that section in the Old Testament where he says, if you follow me and if you are obedient, you will have blessings coming out your ears. You will not be able to be unblessed. It will be, you will be catastrophically successful in everything you do if you obey. But you will get the inverse if you are disobedient. And here, right, we have this moment where like he could not have been more clear about who he is in his message and how he is arriving. But he also understands their hearts and his grief is because he knows. He knows what they will do. He knows those that will abandon him. And that's, that's this tragic moment because this is taking place at Passover. This is taking place on the day when the Passover lamb would be selected. So you have these thousands of families going and picking out the lamb that they would keep for the rest of the day in order to then take to the temple for their atonement. He is arriving in the middle of the selection of the lamb as the ultimate lamb. And people are basically saying like, I, I like your donkey. That's a cool donkey you're on. That's, that's really cool. I like how you're going like to kick out the Romans. And they miss it. And as frustrating as that is, right, this is kind of that, that moment in the movie where you're like, don't go in there. Why would you go in there? We have this response here, but to understand that the same foolishness that's in their hearts and the ignorance, the Lord did not then say, that's it. Turn this donkey around. I'm out of here. This is unbelievable. You are not prepared. Where they're at does not dictate whether or not he pursues. And that is the huge blessing for us, that there is no amount of ignorance that we can concoct where the Lord says, all right, I'm sick of you. But while we have breath, his provision is there for us, his pursuit. And his heart is so very clear in, in these actions that he takes. So I will close and um, we'll continue with Tuesday next week. Father, thank you so again. Just thank you that you were willing to send your son. Jesus, we praise you for your humility that is beyond human strength and ability. We thank you so for your love for us. We thank you for your provision that we may not know, but we can thank you for tomorrow because of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.